0: Welcome to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, DPT Steph, your doctor of physical therapy, bringing you all things PT with an interdisciplinary approach so that you can be the best clinician that you want to be. Welcome to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is Stephanie, your doctor of physical therapy, otherwise known as DPT Steph. On this episode, we'll be talking with Wesley, also a doctor of physical therapy. And to get us started, Wesley, why don't you give us a little bit of history of your PT journey?
1: Cool. Thanks for having me, Steph. Um, So I graduated from Franklin Pierce University with my doctor of physical therapy in 2015. Crazy. It's been that long at this point. Uh, After I graduated, I went to work for uh, my last rotation. It's a kind of a general physician-owned outpatient clinic. I was there for six months. Didn't really like it too much, and then I transitioned to another physician-owned facility. I was there for about a year and a half, and then I was able to link up with Teddy. Some of you guys know him as Strength Coach Therapy Online. We kind of connected. I went in to shadow him a couple times and eventually just kind of formed a relationship. I told him if he was looking for another physical therapist, I'd love to come work there. And sure enough, a few months later, he was, so he gave me an offer, and I went into work the following Monday and told him I'm giving my four weeks notice. Um, so I've been at Healthy Baller since October of 2017. So it's crazy; it's been over three years now. Um, it's, it's been an amazing journey, just uh, obviously growing as a clinician, um, learning how to specialize in ACR rehab and all that kind of stuff, but also um, diving into some kind of like online platforms of doing my mastermind group and things like that. Um, so that's kind of my 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 PT journey in a nutshell.
0: Awesome! Very cool. Um, And it's very like, it's almost kind of straightforward. But did you know, going through PT school or even before PT school that you wanted to be in like an outpatient or maybe even sports type setting? What were your clinical affiliations during school?
1: Uh, 100% I wanted to work with athletes, like zero debate. You know, a lot of times, like I, I think of the first week of school, the, the teachers will always tell you like, Hey, try to keep an open mind, blah, blah, and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I am so close minded to any of this. Uh, <laughs> and, and I, I did have some classmates who, you know, went in with wanting to do outpatient and then they did like a narrow one and things like that. And they, they changed. Um, but I, I went into PT school because I tore my ACL and I went through that journey myself of, you know, recovering as an athlete. And that's, I I had my mind made up and I knew nothing was going to change my mind. And sure enough, nothing did, thankfully. Um, So yeah, that's, that was my decision going into PT school. And as far as my affiliation goes, to be honest, I didn't really have any great ones. None of them were in settings like healthy baller, or even ones that specialized in sports rehab. Um, They were more like kind of general outpatients, you know, you would see anywhere from like a 12 year old kid to an 85 year old patient, wide range. Um, so, unfortunately, I wasn't able to set something up where it was definitely like very, very sports specific like it is a healthy baller.
0: Very cool. How do you feel like your PT education either benefited, benefited you or didn't prepare you for the setting that you're in now? Because I know Cerex or just like exercise or weightlifting in general is such a topic that unfortunately is not talked about much in PT school. So, what's your perspective on it?
1: I was smiling when you asked this question because, I, you know, tr- truthfully, it did not prepare me. I, I, I think that a lot of students want to work in a sports facility like ours. You know, it's kind of the, the dream for a good amount of people. You know, there are a lot of athletes who get hurt and kind of the similar stories in mind. You get hurt, go to PT school. I want to work with the same type of demographic that, you know, I grew up being, being around. And, you know, at least at, at my school and from what I've gathered from talking to other PTs and PT students is that, the therax portion is still drastically behind what it should be, particularly when you're working in an outpatient world. And this doesn't even have to include sports. It's just a general outpatient. I think that the therex portion, the strength and conditioning side needs to improve, even just a kind of a foundational understanding of it. When I came out of school, truthfully, if you look at all my flow sheets, it was three sets of 10 for everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was yellow band. Oh, it's too easy. Cool. Let's go to the green band and the blue band and the black band. You know, that was, that was my general progression for stuff. And that was kind of what we were taught. And then coming to, coming to healthy baller, Teddy, you know, mentored me and taught me a lot of things. And he was like, you know, it's not always about three sets of 10. You can slow down the tempo a little bit and increase that time and retention. You can change up the weight. You can change your positioning. Uh, there's so many things that can go into what's an actual strength program that unfortunately we just don't get a chance to talk about in T school. And, I try not to fault it too much because at the end of the day, their job is to prepare us for the boards. That is their number one priority is for us to pass the boards, which I understand. If you don't pass the boards, you can't practice. But I feel like if schools are able to offer some sort of like good elective course where Mm -hmm. people who are interested in outpatient sports PT, even if it's honestly like a two- to three-week course, it doesn't need to be a full-on semester, but bring in a guest speaker who really understands this stuff for the students that are interested I personally feel like that could go a long way just to kind of get the ball rolling. And obviously, if you take the course and you're like, wow, I really like this, then here's some content or whatever it is to dive deeper into it. And, you know, I, I think that if, if that was offered, I think that a lot of people would honestly be able to offer a better level of care as opposed to just kind of this generic three sets of 10 thing that we unfortunately still live in for a lot of facilities.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point too. I mean, I totally agree with what you said. I think having a two, three week type elective would totally help and at least would give some set of foundation or just some minor skills that someone then can further build on rather than having to almost start from scratch once you graduate or pass the boards. For students who didn't have this knowledge in PT school, but they want to go into sports. Where do you think they should look for resources to get this kind of knowledge, whether it's like a strength and conditioning certification, or just any type of courses or Instagram, social media?
1: I might not be the best person to ask in regards to that, just because I had kind of like that one-on-one like mentorship from, from Teddy. But, you know, honestly, with nowadays with like Google, there's so much things that you can learn on Google. And even then, I think that if you wanted to get like a formal certification, obviously the CSCS is a pretty common one that a lot of people have who want to work in kind of that sports outpatient world. So that's kind of where I would start. And even just looking up, honestly, as as simple as it is, Googling like basic fundamentals of strength and conditioning, you know, and starting from there and just learning about time and retention and and progressive overload two basic concepts that are not really talked about in people's mm-hmm. school ever. So I think just starting from there uh, and then if you want to dive deeper, obviously, I think that from a practical standpoint, trying to go into a strength and conditioning facility and ask them if you can shadow them and if you really like what they do and, you know, they're welcome to having students like, hey, like, do you mind walking me through why this is in your program? So at least for us at our facility, our programs are written on a big whiteboard so that all the athletes can come in and see them. That way, if they're in between sessions, like, oh, what's, what's in my second block in the second exercise? Oh, I can go over to the whiteboard and take a look at it so they're they're on the whiteboard so you know hypothetically if a student were to come in they could literally see the program up there and i think that that can give pt students some insight into what it looks like to writing like a more formal program seeing the mindset behind it seeing like where like you would add a power component to it or a movement component to it like where it all flows in again this is not really stuff that's talked about in, in pt school at all it's just kind of like go do rehab and follow this mindless protocol that you know i can go on a tangent on but uh I'll see your audience
0: from there. <laughs> I know. It's definitely a topic to completely dive deeper into. Long story short, get your patients off of the treatment table. That's essentially what I've learned. And clamshells are not for everybody. But again, a whole nother topic. I want to talk a little bit about what it's like day-to-day at Healthy Baller for you. Do you see, I know you're big into the ACLs, but is it all ACLs, mostly ACLs? What are your patients like?
1: Probably 70-some percent of my patients are ACLs it's just kind of like, i guess just the nature of my business and i think that particularly for like cash base, it's kind of nice to have a niche just so you're known for something but you know i definitely do treat you know shoulder pains neck pains things like that low back pain like muscle strains so i definitely do see a lot of those which which is nice just cuz you know as much as i love ACLs it's nice to kind of diversify a little bit see different body parts and and keep my mind kind of sharp and my clinical reasoning sharp in those those aspects but as far as like my day goes i normally don't start to like 10 or 11 but I'm there until about 7 to 8 p.m. every day because of the nature of seeing high school athletes. And that's kind of the side of, I guess, treating athletes that some people don't understand is that, like, you will most likely have to work late hours because if you're trying to work with athletes, particularly high school level athletes, they can't come see you until about 3, 3.30. And if you want to see four of them in a day, like, you're that already right there for an hour each. Like, you're already looking at 7.30, 8 o'clock. So yeah, that's a that's a pretty normal day. I would say on a weekly basis, when it's not like busy season for me, it's about twenty five to thirty. And then when I do get in the busy season, which is coming up now with my college athletes, and in the summertime, I'm probably closer to like thirty five to forty um, a week. And each slot is is an
0: hour. Very cool. Do you find that athletes from different sports kind of react to their ACL injuries differently because of their prior? activity levels i guess you can say
1: it definitely depends I, I think that across the board it's not even just the athletes just like every single individual person will react to an acl differently i've had some kids who come in the door and they just like you tell them what to do cool i got it like i can i can just do it don't worry about me i can make it through without without any problems and then you have other kids who are like i'm so scared to do this i'm so scared to do x y and z and it's like okay cool let's break it down a little more let's slow it down more and then on the flip side i have a girl right now who plays division one lacrosse and you tell her what to do I have to give her very, very specific numbers. Like you need to do this at 50% speed, nothing more than that. And I will like look her in the eyes, like you cannot go more (laughs) because she's the type that you tell her to run six laps, she'll run 12. You know, that's Mm. the type of athlete that she is, but she got to this level of playing lacrosse at a very high level because of who she is as an athlete. And it's a matter of, again, kind of like trying to understand them as, as human beings and figuring out like, who do I need to push more? Who do I need to rein back more? And that's across the board. That's not even just ACR rehab. It's just the fact that for any patient that comes in the door, treatment absolutely has to be individualized, which is why I think that protocols are kind of whack, <laughs> to, 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 to put it simply. And that's, that's across the board. You know, Nothing should be generic about rehab. And that, I don't care what setting you're in. You, know, you can be in a neuro, you can be an inpatient, sniff, outpatient, whatever it is, it 100% has to be individualized. So that's kind of a more general answer to your question.
0: I mean, but it's a great answer. It's there. It's a truth that you have to apply to everything. Not every patient reacts the same or can handle the same, you know, kind of queuing or mentality that you're going to bring to the session. So it's a great point to make. Do you have to collaborate with other primary care physicians or other healthcare professionals, whether it's in the setting you're in now? And I know you touched on before you were in prior to Healthy Ball or like physician-owned clinics. So break it down a little bit of what that was like having to work under a physician care, and then kind of where you're at now.
1: The uh, the ironic thing is, I actually communicate more with physicians now when I don't work for them. It maybe it was just the settings that I was in, but I didn't really communicate with our physicians that much, even though they were two floors up from us. There was one ortho that would do like a post-op day down at the PT facility. So he would come down, if it was an ACL, he might like drain their knee right in front of us, things like that, just so all of us would be collaborative effort. But as far as communication goes, there there definitely wasn't a ton. But now, at least where like Teddy and I have been here for three to four years now, healthy baller, and now we have Christian Sweezy with us. We have, I guess, built a good relationship with probably four to five orthopedists in the area. So for them, we don't send them updates all the time. You know, they don't need to be bombarded with emails and things like that, but If they're about to go for a follow-up, a lot of times they'll tell us, like, hey, we're going to go see Dr. So-and-so on Thursday. Do you mind sending an email really quick? Cool. So a lot of times, like, you know, Teddy will email his four patients to Dr. So-and-so, and and then I'll do the same thing for Dr. So-and-so just so they have an update on the patients. They'll kind of follow up and be like, hey, everything looks great. Um, But for the most part, you know, there's not a ton of communication with with them, just giving them updates, and they'll update us if, if needed. Obviously, if there's a complication, then that's when communication is much more pertinent. And then on the flip side for like other professions. So we work with strength coaches directly. We have like eight to 10 strength coaches at Healthy Baller. So if it's like a really late stage person and they're kind of doing, maybe they'll do one or two days of PT and then they'll do one or two days of strength training or whatever it is. We will communicate with the strength coaches like, Hey, like make sure to keep their runs to 75% and make sure that they are not going beyond whatever eight sets of whatever you're doing. You know, that way we're keeping track of volume. Be like, hey, they back squatted 125 and that hurt. Okay, cool. Like, make sure you don't hit that threshold. You know, that kind of stuff where, where you have to make sure we communicate to them. And then from the rehab side, at least for me, for my late stage, a lot of my girls, because mostly lacrosse girls that we see, I'll communicate to Matt, the owner of Healthy Baller, who sends a lot of his lacrosse girls to me and be like, when so and so did this deceleration exercise, she didn't look very good. She didn't look very confident. Do you think you can work on this with them also? You know, that way it's, it is a true collaborative effort between us. And then lastly, a lot of my college kids, I have to communicate with their athletic trainers. Right now, it's kind of a prime example. Almost in December, I have them until they go back to school in January. So I have to keep track of what they're doing. And then when they go back to school, I have to update their ATs, whether it's via email or Zoom call, whatever it is, to be like, hey, they did this and this and this. This is where I think they're at. This is what I think they still need to improve upon. You know, those are kind of the big things that typically need to be communicated to whoever you're working with.
0: That's awesome. So you really get a glimpse of a sense of a team, even though the team is not physically there. And there's definitely a lot of communication components to that as well. Have you ever received any pushback or disagreements from primary care physicians where maybe you're pushing someone past the typical like protocol or getting there, there early or later than usual?
1: Good question not that i can think of
0: you're just so uh, good at your job but-
1: <laughs> as aggressive as i try to be i also am conservative in the sense that i tell every kid particularly for a late stage like i'm not clearing you until you pass my test you know i post that a lot on my social medias like i will not clear anybody before they clear the test obviously you know there are maybe very rare situations of like maybe you're like 88 percent and you're like professional athlete and this is like your final tryout to get a paycheck like i'm not going to hold you back you know But for the most part, for my high school and college level athletes, like, you're definitely not getting cleared until you pass my tests. So I I don't really have any pushback in that aspect. I will say that there are some orthos who might clear a kid before I do because they base it off a timeline or whatever it is. And that part gets a little tricky because I tell them, like, this is what I'm looking at. This is why I'm making decisions because I'm basing it off of research. But a lot of orthos will also just be like, you know, we trust what you guys are doing. So when you clear them, like. They have the green light from us already. So as long as you give them the green light, then they're clear to fully go back. But as far as like the actual rehab from immediate post up to whenever, I haven't really gotten any pushback from anybody. Again, I try to be respectful. You know, when I say like don't follow protocols, I don't mean like completely ignore them. I I definitely make sure I know the weight-bearing limitations, range of motion limitations. Those are the kind of the big things immediate post up that I want to make sure I'm paying attention to because if you have a meniscus repair, like obviously you don't be weight-bearing on it with, with your knee bent. You don't know, want to be bending beyond a certain point because they want to heal. You're not doing a super low squat or anything like that. So, you know, there's fine tuning that needs to happen when you're, when you're doing rehab.
0: How do you stay up to date, whether it's current research or if there are protocols that are changing, what's the best way for you to stay on top of all of that? Obviously, because you have a lot going on in the clinic as well.
1: Yeah. You know, I will go on to kind of those research websites and just look up ACL rehab and just kind of dig through some digging and find a couple of articles that kind of piqued my interest but on top of that, you know, there are a lot of resource people out there who are posting on top of like, you know, I do a lot of, I would say I'm more like the exercise side of things, but incorporating research into that. But there are people who are actually posting research articles on AC rehab and I follow them on social media. So a lot of times i will scrolling through and I will literally just screenshot it and that'll be my reminder to look up the full article later on. So that's how I, and, you know, like Steph Allen is, is someone who's great who posts a lot of research on ACL rehab. So sometimes I'll look for it myself, but also on top of that, utilize what other people are kind of posting on social media and then look up the
0: article myself. That's like a good way to do it because then you go through your phone you're like, oh, I have all these things. Look up and go back and reference too, which is awesome. I want to touch on a little bit to the ACL Mastermind Group. So for those who don't know, why don't you give us a little brief overview of what exactly it is?
1: Sure. Uh, So this program, I... I was trying to solve a problem. And I think for ACL Rehab, you know, we talk about the statistics of re which is nowadays on average between 20 and 25%. So one in every 45 kids are suffering a second tear. And on top of that, maybe some of them are suffering a third and fourth tear. So I wanted to try and figure out a way to solve, at least reduce that number. Uh, obviously that number will never be 0%. It's just a nature of sports. But what can I do to help reduce it? And I thought about too, when I was a student in a new grad, and you know, I remember so vividly getting my first ACL. I was excited because i was like, this is this is what I came to do. This is why I pursue this career. And they handed me this protocol, and I, I didn't know any better at the time, so I followed that protocol to a T. You know, just like zero to two weeks, do this; two to six weeks, do this. And there's no critical thinking to what I was doing. And ACL rehab, in my opinion, is one of the most complex injuries in the outpatient world that you can possibly do. There's so much to do. There's so many details that people miss upon, and this protocol. Can- and not tell me how to rehab from point A to point B. It, it's impossible. It, 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 if you were to write down every single detail, that would be like the encyclopedia. It would be massive. And again, people don't really understand that. So I wanted to solve this problem. And I I basically started this platform, the Mastermind Group. Uh, it's, a, it's a growing library of, of rehab content centered around ACR rehab. Obviously, a lot of it can be used for just kind of lower extremity rehab. You know, I think that's the overlooked portion of it is that a lot of this can be used for an ankle some, an LCL, PCL, whatever it is, you know, a a tendonopathy. So I I wanted to basically build a platform where I can educate, you know, PTs, ATs, students, physios, whatever you want to call it across the board, ATCs on how to rehab ACLs basically from start to finish. Obviously, you know, I, I I wanted to put strength coaches in there because at the end of the day, they do help with rehab, particularly in that late stage of, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine months, their facilities are typically honestly better than, general outpatient facilities, you know, like our facility, we have a 40 yard turf space. My last job I had, we had no open space. We had 10 pound dumbbells, 15 pound kettlebells. I can't load anybody with that much weight. So you have to have these relationships with people. And that's where I, I felt like this platform could be utilized for strength coaches. Obviously they're not going to put their hands on an ACL immediate post-op. They're going to do the late stage stuff. So it literally I, I cover from day one post-op like questions to ask for an eval, I have video breakdowns of like kind of exercises that I like to use for again, all the way from knee extension exercises, knee flexion exercises, quad contraction, all the way to that late stage stuff of how to teach people how to break down what we call a T-step, which is, which is a transition step, how to teach people how to decelerate, how to teach people how to change direction, all that kind of stuff I break down in video format. Um, On top of that, there's also, there's video breakdowns of exercises. There's also just like a growing library. So Every exercise, whether it's plyometrics, I have easy, medium, hard. I also have quads, hamstrings, glutes, movement exercises from reactive to non reactive, more like a controlled setting, because you gotta start there. There's also a private forum where you can share articles, ask questions. If you have a case study on a patient that you have, you can post it on there and people will respond to it. So, it, you know, it's, it's a pretty comprehensive program. Currently, I think there's like 280 some people in it right now. So it's been a great thing. Um, I, I, I didn't think that it was gonna be this well received, to be honest. But it's been awesome just seeing how many people are just as passionate as I am about AC Rehab. And, you know, this is my kind of indirect way of helping other athletes that I can't really reach because if I can help the clinicians get a little better, then their athletes going to be a little better for it. For sure. Um, so right now it's at like 275 some videos at this point. And every two or three weeks I add more videos, I add more videos. So it's, it's definitely constantly growing.
0: That sounds awesome. And it's a great way to, like you said, just kind of experience all that different content so you can continue to be one of the top clinicians at that kind of level that's to really help those patients. Where can people find out more about the ACL Mastermind group?
1: Uh, so the easiest link as far as like frequently asked questions is also like kind of quick video on what it looks like. Uh, but you can go to WesleyWangDPT.com slash ACL Mastermind. So WesleyWangDPT.com
0: Perfect. Okay. Well, I also want to touch on, on a couple more things. With the pandemic, the past eight, 10 months, I don't even know what month it is anymore. How has your practice changed, been affected? Have you done any telehealth, virtual consults? If you have, has it made your practice easier, more difficult?
1: A uh, load of questions, Steph. Um, <laughs> I think that for the first month, that was the more difficult time because it was so new. No one knew what to do we weren't even sure about like, again, we're trying to figure out like, are we allowed to even work because we're inside of a gym and Maryland closed gym. So we're like, ah uh, like for physical therapy. So we are considered mm-hmm. essential. Uh, so we're just trying to figure those things out just to make sure that we weren't doing anything illegal. Uh, so I definitely was doing more telehealth, you know, as a home on a computer and calling my patients via zoom and things like that um, to make sure that they were still able to progress um, we actually, as a company, we actually let people borrow some weights because a lot of people don't have weights. So it's like, Hey, even again, not ideal, but something's better than nothing. So come pick up a 20 pound dumbbell. Keeping track of all that was, was chaos in itself, just because mm-hmm. you're, you're renting on equipment. We personally, as a company, because Teddy didn't work for a little while. And at that time, Alyssa was still working with us. Like we didn't really take on any new patients just because again, it was just, we were trying to figure things out for the first once I got back into the facility, when I knew it was like we were legally allowed to go back because we're PT, for, for probably like two to two months or so, I didn't take on anyone new. I had the same seven athletes there Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I, I just saw them Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I, I My schedule never changed. It was the same seven athletes there. And I saw them. And then probably around June, I want to say, we, we made a decision that we could start taking on new patients. So we started seeing a little bit more, a little bit more. You know, I, I've been very thankful because I was able to continue working. Unfortunately, had friends who have lost their jobs because they've been laid off and furloughed. I'm sure you've had the same.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I couldn't imagine being a new grad trying to find a job in this this environment. Uh, so it, it's it's been a it's been a blessing just to be able to work, even if I was working at you know 65% capacity. It's better than zero percent capacity. So I, I've been very fortunate and blessed in that aspect. Um, and then now, you know, we're obviously like you said, eight nine months into quarantine, we're up to full swing now as far as PT goes. Training-wise, we've had to limit capacity because Maryland currently limits the facility to 25 max, so they've had to cut down on the volume of what they're seeing. Sometimes they take kids outside. They've unfortunately had to adapt a lot more than we've had, had to do because we're, we're one-on-one. And then we actually recently hired Sweezy, who started September, and it's been crazy because she's picked up a lot quicker than we thought, and she's actually already up to about 20 patients a week. Yeah, so it's been amazing that we've been able to kind of ride the storm out and you know thankfully we've been able to still thrive during this time
0: of course now going through all of this like the changes whether it was like virtual health or just you know changing protocols in the clinic and stuff where do you see because obviously pt has shown to be so adaptive to the conditions i would say hopefully obviously we get out of this pandemic sometime soon but where do you see the PT profession going in the next, whether it's five or even 20 years?
1: I do think that as a whole, this pandemic changes a lot. I think that people have learned that telehealth is a viable option. Um, obviously, it matters your condition and things like that. But I, I definitely do think it's a viable option that insurance is what we can look into as far as like covering more often. And it gives you a little flexibility. You know, think if you're uh, a new mom and you're staying at home and it's like you have the baby and you can't obviously leave. But can I hop into a Zoom call for an hour and see, you know, two patients, three patients for a quick little 20-minute follow-up? Yeah, why not? You know, and still give good quality of care, still make some money, and still help a lot of people. Um, I, I do think that's definitely a viable option. Obviously, it matters on the demographic that you're working with. Um, And I think even across the board, as far as, like, you look into, like, other professions, as far as, like, even MDs and and doing follow-ups that way, like, it can save them a substantial amount of time. And also, like, my ortho that I see right now is 35, 40 minutes away. If I can save that hour and a half of driving and waiting there and I could just hop on a Zoom call really quickly to give a quick update, definitely going to take that. Uh, So I, I think as a whole, as far as the medical profession goes, I think telehealth is here to stay. I think that it's going to be used a lot more. To make people more efficient and save people a substantial amount of time. Obviously, if you're a media post op and you gotta go get it checked out, cool, you got you gotta go in. Um, but for kind of the more general follow-ups, you know, even if you're looking at ACLs, because of what I see mostly at the three, four month follow-up, they're not really doing too much. They're kind of just asking questions like how you're doing and things like that. They don't need to look at your wound, hopefully it's healed by then. You know, quick follow-up, like, oh, everything's going really well in PTE, I'm starting to jog a little bit, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Cool, green light, good to go, keep going. And then you just save the parents time, you save the kid time. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there's 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 a lot of benefits to telehealth that I feel like um, is, is here to stay.
0: No, yeah, of course. And those are valid points. And I think, you know, it's hard for me sometimes to think of all that stuff because I'm in the city. And I feel like things are so not easily accessible, but they're obviously much closer in proximity to one another. Um, and I even know the outpatient facility that I did one of my clinicals at people came on their lunch break because it was just right near their office or something um, but I've had a couple other people on the podcast who have said the same thing like when you're in a more rural area and you have to travel 30 minutes sometimes an hour each way then you also have a 30 minute hour long appointment and then the same commute back like it really can make a huge huge difference and obviously there's some skills that do need to be hands-on but if it's not every single appointment then people will feel like they need it or are able to get to the appointments more often I should say. I do want to talk a little bit bit about just social media as a PT as well because I know you're you're very prevalent on Instagram but you've been on it for a while so what have you seen change over the past few years because I even think back to I graduated a year ago but even when I started PT school there wasn't much on social media as far as the PT profession so what have you seen change or even change with your page?
1: I graduated in 2015 and PT Instagrams really weren't a thing very very few people had it and I, I talk about like the waves of to people that have a little bit bigger following like Teddy and the prehab guys doctrine fit, you know, some of these people who have, you know, five, 600,000 followers, like they were, they were the OGs. They started right at the beginning. So it's crazy because Teddy started his Instagram, quote unquote, only six months ahead of me. But at that time, and I'm trying to think I started in 2017. Yep. April or May of 2017. So it's crazy. It's been over three and a half years now. Teddy started like August of 16 That was like, that was when I, in my opinion, that kind of initial wave, I think the prehab guys were around that time. So social media wise, those two, as far as the outpatient world have been Mm -hmm. like pioneers, they put on a ton of amazing content. So on top of their amazing content, it was also easier to grow on Instagram. Um, So when I first, just to give an example, when I first met Teddy, I think I met him April or May of 2017. That was kind of when I was starting my social media And I I think that within between that time, he was at like thirty five, forty thousand, something like that, which is a lot. And then by the end of that year, so I'm talking seven to eight months, I think he grew from thirty to forty thousand to two hundred thousand. It was ridiculously fast. And I think, in my opinion, you cannot do that anymore on Instagram. Instagram has completely changed their algorithms. And even to just give a personal example, uh, for about a year, I was I was hitting about ten thousand a month. So I was like really happy with that. That's obviously a really really big number. And then starting October of last year, so we're talking about 14 some months ago, everything started really slow down. Nothing changed. I was still posting the same stuff. Um, And then now I I hit 200,000 in October of 19. And again, just to put into reference, like that 10,000 I grew from 100 to 200 happened in 10 months. Mm -hmm. And now I'm at like 260. So in the past 14 months, I've hit 60,000. It's a really, really big drop off. Yeah. Um, and I think that Instagram has gone to more like paid stuff. So you had to like pay to be seen and, and all that kind of stuff. And they change your algorithms. I think a lot of people ask, like, should I start a PD Instagram? That's, a, I guess, a pretty common question. Um, and in my opinion, I, you can ask anyone that knows me really well, especially the people that were, that were with me from the beginning. I never started my Instagram for the purpose of growing to X amount of followers. It's just something that I was blessed with and something that happened. Um, it was never, ever a part of my plan. I, I'm pretty sure I told my wife that if I can hit 5,000, that would be pretty cool if I hit 5,000. Um, thankfully, I've been able to grow a little bit bigger, bigger than that. But I did it for the purpose of challenging myself. I did it for the purpose of growing. I'm the type of person that never wants to be wrong. I don't need to be right. I just don't want to be wrong. Um, so putting myself out there and putting exercise out there for the purpose of like people can that can judge me and all that kind of stuff. But I I I'm thankful I did it. It's it changed my life for the better. Um, sometimes for for the most part for the better. <laughs> but just it allowed me to connect with Teddy. Obviously allowed me to connect with you, <laughs> both Alyssa and Sweezy that we've hired like through social media. It's crazy. It's it's, yeah. it's such a it's the world that we live in now. I've been able to talk with the guys from the Prehab guys. Like connect with Mike Rhino. Like so so many big names out there that you know I I would have never been able to do outside of social media. And even just having people on my own podcast through people who I've met from social media, you know, it's such a crazy thing. So I I definitely think that for any student or PT that wants to start it, start it for yourself, start it for Mm -hmm. the purpose of wanting to grow yourself and grow your brand of physical therapy, use it to network with people. It doesn't matter how many followers you have. You can have a thousand followers, but there's someone on there that is following your page because they're interested in it. So connect with them. You know, it's not about the X amount of followers that people have. And I think that people think that it's easier for me to say because of X amount of followers, but I, I promise you that I did not do it for for to gain this many followers. It just sort of, sort of happened. And in my opinion, it's a lot harder to do and a lot harder to grow to X amount of followers nowadays because of how Instagram has changed the algorithms.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's totally difficult now. I think it's just so overly saturated. And I even see, since my following, I feel like it's mostly students. There's so many people with student pages. It's, the st- it's kind of repetitive after a while. This is no shade to any student that has an account. I just mean, like, we need to start seeing more things that are, you know, truly authentic and truly unique because everyone just seems to be forcing it just to do it, to do it, or say that they do it. And even from my Instagram management side that I try to tell people that I work with, like, you can't set yourself to like a stressful mold just because you want to be on Instagram. It has to be. You're doing it because you want to educate people or solve a problem or actually just put yourself out there. I know I did it to hold myself more accountable as a clinician and to set an example for students and try to grow the profession as well. But again, you're right. It's completely not about the numbers. It's just about If I can make an impact on one person, then I feel like I was successful.
1: Yeah, I think, I think definitely co- diving into the, the beast of social media is you have to do it for the right reasons. If you start doing it for some obscure number that you're trying to hit, it's just going to become super draining. And, and honestly, it's not going to be enjoyable. Uh, yeah. And even, even then, like you look at Teddy, he's actually, for those who really follow, he's posted a lot less just because it became really daunting. He's obviously involved in so many other things. So I don't think he's posting like a month at this point for probably two, two and a half years. It was every single day. And I've kind of slowed down a little bit too. I don't really post that much on weekends anymore. So I try to go kind of Monday through Friday. Um, So, you know, it's just, it's it's an animal in itself. And it it can also get really draining, just kind of always checking Instagram, which I unfortunately find myself doing too often. So, which is why I found myself not posting anymore on Saturdays and Sundays. I I think trying to do it for the right reasons of networking, Mm -hmm. growing your brand, learning um, are kind of the big reasons of why I would encourage a student or a PT to start a business Instagram.
0: Yeah, networking is huge. And obviously, now, especially more in COVID times where we can't go to courses or meetings or, you know, like CSM, for example, I don't think it's happening this coming 2021. So that's when you would be networking and meeting all these people. So now this is your chance to do so. And I know through podcasts and stuff, I've been able to talk with so many other people as well, which has been great. I do want to turn to a fun note. I've been asking everybody this. What have you been doing outside of the PT world, outside of the clinic? during quarantine?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I probably work too much. Uh, Cause even then again, just with, I guess being a business owner on top of seeing clients or patients in person, I have my mastermind group um, seeing some online clients for training for ACR rehab, but outside of anything PT work related, we have a group of friends, obviously very small. There's like three or four friends that come over on most weekends. We try to keep everything really small. We're pretty conservative of who we see and things like that, just with COVID and everything. But nothing crazy, you know. On weekends, my wife and I would try to watch a movie. Occasionally, go out for a walk if it's not too cold. She tries to drag me, but I don't love walking. But just you know, we have a we have a gym in our basement, so working out on weekends. Footballs uh, on Sunday, obviously.
0: Obviously. Uh, we go to,
1: yeah, we go to church on Sundays, virtual, obviously, right now. So yeah, you know, nothing, nothing crazy, uh, nothing too exciting. I would probably lead a pretty boring life compared to what most people maybe think. But I'm, <laughs> I'm a big introvert, so I, and I'm a big homebody, so I love being at home. So this whole quarantine thing, it hasn't been too bad, obviously. But I am getting a little itchy to like go somewhere. But unfortunately, we cannot do that right now.
0: I support it. It's okay. I have an introvert as well. So I completely, or I think I like fluctuate, but I definitely tend to be more of an introvert. But it has been getting to me a little bit. I'm like, all right, I'm ready to at least take my once a month like social adventure somewhere. But it's like, you know, you're limited to what you can do. But otherwise, I mean, having a movie night is not a bad idea. So good. Lots of good movies coming out. Yeah. Um, Any final tips that you have for students, whether it's about getting into sports PT, ACL PT, or just PT in general?
1: Uh, Good question. I think for anyone who is generally interested in the sports rehab world, obviously it's such a niched market. You know, a lot of places don't really understand what it looks like to be like actual true sports PT, working with like high school D1 athletes, and then obviously in the pros, um, and just understanding the physical demands that they need to put themselves. And then at the end of the day, how rehab can help them get to that point of 100% performance. So I think that, honestly, a great resource, and I say this all the time, is to find a local, either a sports PT place or find a local strength and conditioning place that kind of does that late stage stuff that you can go and just pick their brains. You know, find someone that you can be like, hey, can I just ask you some questions? And then just form relationships in that area. And I think that just going there and shadowing and learning how they teach certain movements, reactive exercises, loading, you know, those are, three big components of, of sports rehab that we don't learn in pt school so i think starting from there and you know just slowly understand that it's going to be a process like you're most likely you're not going to get your dream job coming out of pt school you got to put in the work you got to put in the grind like for me i was going i had my job from 8 to 5 30 and then i would go into shadow teddy after that until like 8 p.m you know so it was a grind it was i was looking at 12 plus hour days until i got home at like 9 p.m but had i not done that i would not be at healthy baller you know so it's. Right. it's that's the crazy part. And I've asked Teddy before about why he chose to hire me because at the end of the day, I don't really have any credentials. I have my DPT degree and that's it. I have no CSCS, I have no OCS or any of that stuff. But he basically told me that a big reason why he chose to hire me was because I interacted with the patients well, that I, you know, when I went to a shadow. And then on top of that, he also said, I showed initiative because he knew that I was coming from work. You know, he knew that I was working, you know, a nine hour day and then coming to shadow him when I really didn't have to. And it's the reality of what kind of it takes to to get to this level of PT, I guess, that people want to get to. But you got to be willing to put in the grind. You got to be willing to network with people, get to know people, put your name out there, put yourself out there and learn. And that's what I feel like it takes to get to kind of this sports PT world that a lot of people want to get into.
0: Yeah, I think that's awesome. Where can people find you if they have questions or want to slide into your DMs?
1: The easiest place is probably Instagram, (laughs) (laughs) WesleyWang.tpt. That's probably where it's easiest to find me.
0: Perfect. All right, there you guys have it. Wesley Wang, thanks for hopping on. It was so great to have you and great talking with you. And you guys know where to find him if you have any questions.
1: Thanks for having me, Steph.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.